Well, good morning, La Jolla Community Church. How is everyone today? Welcome to church. Uh, let's let's worship the King together. Let's start. Let's sing and worship God.
God, our creator, we thank you for the changing of the seasons. We are now seeing the signs of summer's passing in the colors of the leaves, the shortening of the days, the cooler mornings, and the occasional rain and fog. We give you thanks for our daily bread and all those who work to bring your harvest home. Forgive us when we appear ungrateful by wasting what you have given us or failing to share it with others. Instill us with consideration for those whose harvest is poor, whose water is tainted, whose families lack things that we take for granted, such as food, shelter, and safety. Imbue us with desire to lend a helping hand to caregivers who provide relief and refuge from poverty and persecution to those less fortunate wherever they live, across the ocean, across the border, or across the street. Bestow us with the spirit of generosity so that all may share in the wonders of your creation and sing your praise. This morning, make us receptive and responsive to Steve's message. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning once again. A welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're so glad to see every one of you. Um, as you arrived, you should have received a bulletin on which you'll find both a Connect card and a prayer card. Um, uh, the Connect card, if you're uh, visiting us for the first time or looking for ways to get involved at the church, uh, please take a moment and fill that out. It says, get connected with us. Uh, let us know you're here. We'd love to get connected with you. Um, also, we invite you to take a moment, fill out that prayer card. Let us know if there's anything on your heart or praise request. We'd love to hear from you. Um, after the service, you can go ahead and take these out um, along with any prayers. Or I'm sorry, the uh, uh, offerings, any envelopes with uh, ties, you can bring both your the prayer card and the connect card, put it in the box in the foyer or right by the door. And with that, I'd like to have Pastor Steve come on up. Okay, so we're in this uh, series we're calling Rooted. We're talking about the core stuff of the faith. Uh, so it's about being rooted in Christ. And so this is what the, the Word of God tells us, that we, we can be rooted in Christ, and out of that rootedness come all these fruits and great things. So we're going to be continuing that today. So the question I want to ask you is, where do you get your information? Where do you get your information about life? Uh, we live in a very interesting time because it used to be, uh, some of you will remember that there were, you know, 
four networks. There was a newspaper, and you got your information from pretty much the same sources as everybody else. There was a guy named Walter Cronkite. Um, some of you know that name. And Walter Cronkite was like everybody's dad or grandfather every night on the news telling you exactly what you needed to know about the world is exactly as it was. And it was so reassuring for people because he had this wonderful voice. And it was like Walt Disney was also now a newscaster. You know, he looked like Walt Disney. And he would, in this very beautiful, rich, baritone voice, just lay it out for you. And so people found great comfort in that. Well, now we live in a time when, how do you know what you know? How do you know what you're seeing or hearing? Uh, a young couple we know and love very much uh, were married yesterday. And um, they both come from large families. They're in their uh, mid-30s. And everybody, of course, uh, um, was always saying, hey, you know, when are you going to get married? What do you, you know? And they said, well, first of all, I have to date somebody, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, but there's the excitement of this family, you know, um, these great people, phenomenal, both of them. And, you know, gee, we want the best for you. And so, um, and they, you know, dabble in dating here and there. So they, they started dating each other. And they knew so many people overlapping. They really wanted to keep it secret. So they didn't have the pressure of, hey, when are you getting married? Well, we just went out, you know. So uh, both families um, are, are part of a community of people that uh, have houses up in the mountains. And so uh, everybody's gathered together, you know, for some holiday or something. And so they, they go out and they have this great evening uh, and talking, hanging out. And so... Um, she is going to drive him back to their, where his family is staying, this extended family. And, and as they pull in, uh, the dad, his dad, happens to have gotten up at 2 a.m. And he, he's walking by the mirror, the window, and he goes, oh, my gosh, the car's coming up. Oh. And he sees his son and some girl he can't, and the girl's driving. And so all of a sudden, they start making out in the car. His dad's like, He's like, he goes back to bed, he goes, honey, honey, I think something's up with Ryan. <laughs> he, I just saw him making out with a girl in the car. And she's like, go to bed, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so the next day, the dad's like, oh my gosh, you know, and he's the father of six sons, and he's going to have this conversation with, you know, you know, him, and so he says, hey, so I just happened to be up last night at 2 a.m. and saw you drive up, and there was a woman driving, and you started making out with her. What's up with that? He goes, uh, oh no, he said. He said, "Hey, uh, I, 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 uh, I know you came in late last night. Uh, how'd you get home?" He goes, "Oh, Uber." <laughs> so the dad's going, "Oh my gosh, my son came home with an Uber driver, and he's making out with her in front of our house." And so he's just it's a complete conundrum. And so the dad doesn't know now what to do with this information, you know. I know what I saw, and he told me it's an Uber. So finally it all came out, and so it was a very, it's a very hilarious family story now for both sides uh, because it was this mishmash of information, and you know, they, wanted their, they wanted to reveal the relationship when it was time to reveal it. So anyway, the question is, that happens every day, and not usually in funny terms. Uh, we get information that we make decisions on or, or, or not make decisions on based on that information that can change the course of your life. So... so uh, the, the, the incredible thing is the, the, we, the amount of knowledge that we have now is staggering. It's staggering. Uh, if, if you find out about something or someone and you're curious about, well, who are they? What, what's going on? Where do you go? You Google them. 
Everybody gets Googled. If you want to know what a property is worth, you look up Zillow or something, you know, or where are those, you know, um, uh, overexaggerate.com, or I don't know, whatever it is, you know, you have to look up to get information. Uh, so the, the information we have is staggering. You know how many PhDs uh, are won and granted every year? Uh, neither do I. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, it stands for piled higher and deeper because so much accumulating knowledge that nobody's ever going to consult. All these people with PhDs have given so much time and talent uh, and treasure to, to earn and means so much to them. And at the end of the day, it sits somewhere. Very few of them are actually published and, and distributed. So anyway, um, that's, an amazing, that's an impressive thing that we can get so much information so easily. The, the other interesting thing I find uh, is that occasionally it's accurate. Occasionally the information we get is accurate. So how do we know what we know. Where do you get your information specifically about God? Everybody is a pundit about God. Everybody has an opinion about God. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, good information, bad information. So out of that, how do you sort it out? And this is where I, I see in our culture, uh, it's not so much people have had these long reasoned you know, considerations uh, in their study about God or deep conversations about God necessarily. They've just got bits and pieces of things about God, and they've drawn a conclusion. And then when they see the way people behave, uh, whether it's in the political arena or the economic arena or the cultural, whatever aspect of the cultural arena, that we draw conclusions. Well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with it. Or if that's what a, you know, whatever it is. Or if that's how ministers act, then I'm done. Uh, it's to the point that if I say, so... A priest, a rabbi, and a pastor go into it. You know, I'm telling you a joke. And so what happens is the whole thing becomes a joke that we dismiss. More crazy religious things going on. Okay, that's why I'm safe if I just call myself an agnostic. But there's something in me that doesn't let me be satisfied with that. So therefore, we're, we're, we're hungry spiritual creatures. We are hungry, hungry spiritual creatures. We try to find a, a, a transcendent meaning in things that can't deliver that. This is our big dilemma as people. So where do you get your information about, the living, about living life and especially about God's part in it? How can we talk meaningfully about God and what he thinks? Uh, and so if you, if you were asked what you think God thinks about something, where would you start? So somebody said to you, hey, I know you go to church. I think you're religious, from what I understand. You go, well, I'm not really religious. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in Christ. I have a relationship with God. Oh, yeah, okay, whatever. You go to church. So let me ask you, um, what do you think God thinks about? Have you ever had this happen to you? Uh, maybe because I'm a pastor, it happens to me. Uh, I'll be at some dinner party or somewhere. Hey, what do you think about, what do you think God thinks about? And so if, it, see, if you were asked that, would you say, well, you know, the Bible seems to be teaching, or the Bible teaches, well, I've read in the Bible that, or would you start with, well, my opinion, <laughs> in my opinion, it's this. And so this is our dilemma. Um, everything comes down to, it's just your opinion. It's a power statement. Uh, it's a power of entitlement. It's a power of, what a, a statement of, of, of some sense of um, privilege. And so we dismiss everything. And, and we, we think we're being smart when we say, yeah, I'm going to hedge my bet on that. I'll take that into consideration, but I'm really not going to lean on that. 
It'd be like if you were invited to somebody's house and you saw this beautiful furniture and this lovely room and you walked in and they said, hey, have a seat. And you go, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm just going to stand here for a while. And then maybe I'll hover over that couch. Maybe I'll sit delicately on the couch, but I'm not certainly going to put my weight on it or lean on it because I don't know what's going to happen here. It'd be ridiculous. People say, hey, it's been great being with you. There's the door, <laughs> you know. Oh, here's your hat with your hurry. Um, so how do you, how do you, where do you land on this? Would you say the Bible teaches or would you say, well, my opinion? I have found it super helpful to direct people to the Bible. I'd say, you know, I can give you some feedback based on my reading of the Bible and studying it, and I think I can give you some pretty good context and pretty good detail. But, but my encouragement to you, and oftentimes it's framed as my challenge to you. You just said some things that are pretty outrageous. On what basis? You have the right to say that, but I'm not sure where that's coming from. It sounds like a big, in my opinion, and so what's your opinion based on? Let's go back to source documents. So that dad had to go back and say, son, I've been thinking about what you said about the Uber. <laughs> it doesn't really match. i got to tell you, what I saw, oh my gosh, dad, you saw that? Yeah, yes, I did. And she must have been an amazing Uber driver. <laughs> and so the son goes, dad, dad, okay, you're the first to know. I probably am not the first to know, but I'm the last to know because I'm dad. Dad's always the last to know. Here's what's going on with me and her. And, of course, now they're married. Okay, fast forward, the dad uh, tragically was killed five years ago, and so they could say at their reception, though my, my dad isn't here to see us kiss at the ceremony, he saw our first kiss. So you put all that information together, and you go, oh my gosh, it gives you goosebumps. Something beautiful emerged out of what it was a mishmash, because the dad was willing to say, son, help me sort this out. Let's go to the sources. So that's why we say, go into the Bible. Go to the Bible. Well, the Bible is, and they get, in my opinion, the Bible is, don't have an opinion about the Bible until you read it, sort through it, and then maybe that opinion you started with is going to be radically transformed to say, this thing is rooted in history, comes out of a particular geography. It's a unified literary whole over 66 books, over um, several millennia, and different authors writing, and it's also consistent, and it holds together. I wonder if it isn't the Word of God. And so today, that's what Rooted has been about. We're talking about these aspects, these, these ten main things that, uh, there, there, we have a thousand main things, there's so many pieces to it, but we're saying, let's just look at ten things, and we have a Rooted group going on, we'll be doing this in the future, more Rooted groups, we've done them in the past, we've had hundreds and hundreds of people go through Rooted in the last uh, 17 years. Uh, because we want people to get rooted in Christ and to have an informed perspective. And so we cover a lot of territory. Today, we're going to ask the question, well, how does God view money? Uh, money is just an incidental thing in life. It's not that important. Um, no, it's, it's a core thing about who we are. Money is a core thing. Anytime and every time I ever hear anybody say, well, it's really not about the money. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it's about the money. Have you ever seen the antique roadshow? And they, you know, they'll look at this and they'll assess the value. And, and there's some thing, you know, whoa, okay. And they'll say, you know, this is worth 30,000 pounds. And the person goes, oh, I would never sell. It's not about the money. I was just curious about, you know. And, you know, you can imagine eyes rolling everywhere. Of course it's not about the money. And even it is about the money. Even your curiosity wants to know, is there value here? We want to know what is the value. So, what, how does God view money? Um, 
I'll say one more thing about this. Is that in a speech several years ago, probably one of the greatest living scientists today on, on the other side of the pond, uh, Lord Rees. Uh, he's a Cambridge guy. Uh, he was giving a lecture at Oxford. If you look up Lord Rees, Google him, uh, the guy is nothing but impressive. I mean, the guy is epic in terms of, if he, if he hasn't won every prize in science, I don't know, I don't know what that would be. He's, he seems to have done everything everywhere, and he's this amazing scientist who would say, I'm, I'm too smart for God. He wouldn't say it that way. Well, he might say it that way. I don't really think there's a God necessarily. I know a lot of people in my career, in my, in my, in my world, believe in God, and I, re I respect him, but I'm just, I'm just not one of them. But he did say this in his speech at Oxford. Maybe some aspects of reality are intrinsically beyond us. In that, their comprehension would require some post-human intellect. Isn't that a great, succinct statement? This was a major admission on the part of Lord Rees. This is a major, but very low-key aside, but gave you a massive insight into his world. He is at the apex of, of science. You can't no more have more access to information, be more of an authority than Lord Rees on a lot of different subjects that actually have specific impact in your life every day, my life. And here he is, his mea culpa is saying, I think there might be more. It's just out of our reach. So from a secular perspective, he's articulating this theological concept, an ancient theological concept expressed in Latin as extra nos. Extra, outside, beyond, nos, us. Nosotros would be in Spanish, right? But in Latin, it's extra nos. And this is a, a theological concept that is um, absolutely uh, essential for coming to a place of saying, what is your personal epistemology? How do you know what you know? How do you sort out the information available to you? Is it what you see? Great. Is it what you experience? Yeah. Uh, but good luck with that, given that you can manipulate any image nowadays, unless you're seeing it in person. Uh, how do you know, right? Is it what you've been told, of course? Uh, how do you test that? But then there's still things that are beyond our capacity. So that's what Lord Reese is saying. Some aspects of reality are intrinsically beyond us in that their comprehension would require some post-human intellect. Uh, it was first said this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Because we're created in the image of God, we yearn to know more. We're curious. We have an insatiable curiosity. What's over the next hill? Another hill. Well, what's past that one? How far can you go from the sky before something is interesting, you know, than just getting on a higher mountain? How do we explore? How do we push out those limits? How about inside the human person? What does it mean to be a human person at the core? So it's at the extreme micro, extreme macro perspective, we're asking that question. Is there something beyond ourselves that we yearn for? And Ecclesiastes said it so nicely. God has set eternity in the human heart. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So what we know about God is revealed to us by God. Maybe not audibly. Maybe you don't get the, the first person version of it, but you get from the word of God a fairly um, seriously critiqued text, probably the most critiqued text ever uh, by more authorities than any other subject has ever been subjected to, and it holds up. 
It holds up logically. It's got an inherent logic. It's got a logic that connects you to different cultures. It's not limited by a cultural situation, economic, social, anything. It just seems to continue on and speak to people. Uh, some friends of ours who have been 20 years in the, the Mideast, uh, teaching English at universities, and, and simply being ambassadors for Christ. And I've told you about them. They've been here to speak. Um, and they have found in those settings, because it's so dangerous to talk about God in terms of Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, uh, they rely on, on, on spiritual insights and nudges from God. They'll be sitting in a, in a, in a cafe, and, and, the, and the server will be serving them, and, and they'll get a word of knowledge. That guy has a bum knee or a bad elbow or is going through some grief thing. Now, you might say, well, they're astute observers of people. They see this. Well, they would say, no, I wish you were that, more, that much more astute. But they'll say, hey, by the way, did you have an issue with your shoulder? How did you know that? Uh, Issa told me that. I had a dream that Issa was speaking to me this week. Who are you? Uh, I'm a father of Issa, and uh, if you like, I'll pray for your shoulder. Well, they've been doing this for 20 years there, and then they've come back to this country. And uh, what is interesting, is, as we were talking this week, it's that, hey, God has been preparing you for 20 years to do that right here. So what happens? They're in Orange County, they're in L.A. County, they're in San Diego County, and they're sitting in a cafe run by Persians, you know, Iranians, run by people from the East, and they say, oh, my gosh, I'm having this experience. So, so God is speaking to them. Well, he's speaking to them in the moment, but the information they're giving is from the Word of God. It's not in my opinion. And so something powerful is going on there because God is revealing himself to us in his Word and then in, in the everyday world. So you get those nudges, those hunches, and, and you have to test them. You can't just say, I had a vision, I had a dream, this must be what... We, we jump to interpretation too quickly, usually. My friends just start with a question. Is this an issue? No. Oh, yeah, I guess it was a pizza last night. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I misunderstood. But, but more often than not, and so what's happening now is they're creating Bible studies and gatherings of people who are freaked out to be talking about God even in America. Because I don't know who from Iran might be eavesdropping. I don't know who from, you know, that whole thing. So this is powerful. We need to see, uh, we, need, we need God's help to see and understand what we experience in life. Uh, and, and to understand and engage the world properly. This is a very humbling moment, a very vulnerable moment for Westerners who think we know everything because we have Google and Wikipedia. And they're awesome because, again, I, four out of ten times they're right. That's better than most baseball players' batting average. You get paid zillions of dollars if you can hit 300. And if Wikipedia and, and Google are up there are like four, 450 percent, you know, uh, 450, uh, uh, you know, if they're doing that well, they must be pretty good. But they're not enough. And so only God's larger than human intellect can reveal to us what we will not see and understand otherwise. We'll miss the whole point. We'll see stuff and make decisions on it, and it might be very wrong. And it might be very wrong if we've, if we've gotten a partial answer to our questions. So what does God tell us re regarding his view of money? Well, a couple things. And this might be just like, well, no duh for you, but I'm going to re review it in this context of God's revelation to us. Money matters. That's what you see when you read the Bible. Money matters. Money, money is important. Money counts. Uh, the love of money is deadly, as is the lack of money. You see that in the Bible. 
money is a theological issue as well as an economic issue. From the biblical, pers biblical, biblical perspective, money is always an economic and social issue, but in a, in a theological context. It says something about people's knowledge of God and relationship with God and what that looks like in relationship with one another. Uh, money is part of the fallen world that is being redeemed by God in Christ. We have problems with money. Money is a placeholder for measuring and recognizing value. Uh, the technical economic term is money is fungible. It just means uh, it is um, interchangeable. You know, a $100 bill can be 520s. It can be 100 bucks worth of crypto. It can be whatever. So value is assigned, and really, in a, in a, in a, in a, I guess in a technical sense, money doesn't even exist anymore. We don't have a gold standard. We just, it's all trust now. It's all trust. You, you have a number in an account, and it tells you it's as a negative or a positive, you know, and, and is it, how do you know? Well, it, that's, the system is holding together. So money is fungible. Value is inherent to us. We want to assign value to everything. Uh, in fact, somebody said, you know, we know the price of everything, the value of nothing. We're good at pricing things. We don't know if it, there's really value there. Uh, everybody who bought houses in Austin, Texas, over the last couple of years, thought they had a great value, but it's about 40%, 20%, depending on the place, lower this year. Uh, so um, money, uh, as much as we'd like to think it's stable and static, it's not. The euro and the pound have never been equal to the dollar in most of our memories. And for a brief period a few weeks ago, it was on par. A dollar was a pound, a dollar was a euro. It's like, whoa. So what they all have in common is buying power, and therefore, from a theological perspective, blessing power. One of the crazy good things our, our country still does, and I, I don't mean to be critiquing our country, I think we have a great country, but I'm saying with all the crazy things you see happening fiscally in our country, one of the great things is you can deduct contributions. One of the smartest things our government does is say, if you give to a nonprofit organization, you can deduct that. It's like a genius thing to do. Because we're saying money can bless, let's release the power of money. So money, or its equivalent, is part of a system of relationships. You think of it as cold, cold hard cash. It's, money is all about relationships. Relationships that are working or not working. The crazy thing, for example, if you take money and, and call it, it in a fungible form, food, there's enough food to feed the whole world. The problem is in distribution. Why? Because we, we're selfish or we have political issues. People starve. People are going to be cold this year for not because there's not enough fuel or food, but because of human machinations. Um, but if we, so, if we if we rely on human values alone, we'll misuse and abuse money and its equivalents. So the issue isn't I have money; it's what do you do with the money you have, or what would you do with the money you have. Uh, this is one of the big disruptive things for people who don't have money and all of a sudden come into a lot of money. A lottery win, an inheritance. It screws up their life usually. Why? Does money screw up your life? No. They were ill-prepared. They had no priorities in place to say, this is what I'm going to do with it. And so what, the, what happens is everybody decides for them or they make crazy decisions or they go nuts. Uh, you look at every 22-year-old who just signs a $30 million contract or $100 million contract for any kind of athletic team and you just shake your head going, uh, I, I hope somebody is standing around that young person saying, 
let's, let's, let's get our head together and, and make this work long term. <clears throat> so if we embrace God's view of money, we earn it and use it in ways that honor and bless. It's a theological proposition. So that's why we seek God's views on money to inform and influence ours. So as Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now in the old you know, King James Version, it would say mammon. Mammon is just was a common word in the day for wealth, <clears throat> for riches in any form, right? Because money is fungible, interchangeable. So the word mammon isn't, somebody said, well, that's, that's probably a god or a demon or something. No, it, it, John Milton in, in his great epic poem, Paradise Lost, assigned the name uh, mammon to an angel who is preoccupied with the pavements of heaven, not heaven itself. And if you go with some of the, you know, the interesting symbolism of heaven, you know, the streets are made, paved in gold. Mammon couldn't get his eyes off the gold street pavers. That's why the old joke is somebody shows up to heaven with a bunch of gold, and everybody goes, yeah, great. we'll fix the street with that, put it right over there. You know, it's useless, because that's not what the point of this place is. It's the king in whose presence we thrive and grow. So you, you, you can serve God with your money. That's the good news. You can't serve God and money, uh, but you can serve God with your money, with whatever that fungible asset is that represents you, your time, your talent, your treasure, your network. So work, for example, obviously produces value, which creates wealth, of which we are to be good stewards. Uh, we're commanded by Scripture to use our time, talent, treasure, and network to honor God and bless people. And therefore, money and wealth are good. We, it, we live, again, in a crazy time when, when in the media, in the political world, anybody who has money, who's earned anything or accomplished something is suspect. Those bad people who have money, those bad companies that have made money, so we have this crazy view. And, and where did that come from? It's a theological view. It's a fallen world theology. It's not a Christ-centered, biblically-based theology. It's a theology that says, if you have something, it's at my expense because the world is a zero-sum game. It's a pie you have to slice thinner, and I'm getting a smaller piece. You don't see that it's not a zero-sum situation. The pie gets bigger in God's kingdom. And so we, we celebrate somebody's success, so we celebrate wealth, we celebrate the generation of wealth. Um, but in a, in, a, in a crimped, fallen world perspective, we now go after people who are wealthy because those buggers don't deserve it. They're holding out on us. They don't pay enough taxes. So I'm not justifying crazy wealth. I'm saying this is the sort of situation <clears throat> when you don't have a, a godly biblical perspective, you have no way of sorting out, is that good or is that bad? Is that actually a good thing? Or are we seeing an actual bad thing? We don't have a basis. Why? Because our values are all screwy, so we can't reassess properly. And that's why there's this big food fight going on in the world about uh, what's good or what's bad when it comes to wealth. And right now we're in a cycle where, on one hand, oh, I want to be wealthy. On the other hand, those people are cheaters, liars, and thieves, you know? So sadly, in this fallen world, um, money is easily and often corrupted. Part of it, too, you know, apart from the goodness and inherent neutrality, you might say, of wealth, is that our laziness, our selfishness, our dishonesty offends God, compromises value, and defaces his creation. It's like, can you abuse anything in the world that's good? Yes, that's the problem. A sexuality can be abused. Trust is the most precious thing we have. That can be abused. 
You pick anything. You can abuse it in a game and game it because we live in a fallen world. So lack of generosity, for example, demeans wealth, deforms the wealthy, deprives the needy. So I'm telling you stuff you already know. I'm just trying to put it in a theological context so that you can say, okay, apart from any political consideration or my socioeconomic self-perception, um, what is at stake here? What is at stake here is, is your soul, who you are in the presence of the living God. And until you know him and trust him, money is going to be a bane to your soul. And, and it's a trite cliche to say that you know, money, people who can be wealthy beyond imagine and miserable. True. It's also very true. People can be wealthy and just happy as a clam. And so the wealth is, is a common theme, but it's not the wealth. It's their understanding of who they are in relationship to their wealth. So dishonesty and greed are to be repented. Debt and dependency are to be avoided. <clears throat> There's very few good examples of, of okay debt. If you have a mortgage and it's a low number, do not pay off your house because you'll make more money if you leverage that money in the marketplace than paying off your 3% or 2% or whatever you have loan. So that's a, well, that's a debt. I've got debt, right. The issue isn't your debt. You're leveraging money in the marketplace, and capitalism thrives on investment. If you're trying to buy a house for the first time and you'll do everything, you'll put everything into the house, that's a bad idea. That's bad debt. So you see what I'm saying? Is that we need a mechanism for processing what looks like a good or a bad use of money, a wise or an unwise use of money. And so by faith, will you believe and obey God when it comes to money? That's the big question. Will you pursue an understanding of money based on what God tells us about it? And the Bible gets very specific and very practical about money, about not ripping off workers, about, about not taking advantage of people who need to borrow money from you, about being honest with your measures and weights, about uh, being generous about seeing the fact that it isn't your money, you're a steward of God's wealth, and what do you think he would have you do with it in whatever situation you're currently in? It's also it's about wisdom and how you help your children deal with wealth. You bless your children by giving them everything they want. Uh, the Bible says that's a very bad idea. You develop your children, you don't spoil your children. So you see where this is? Every aspect of human life that matters to us is addressed in the scripture. And then the things that aren't in there I didn't see Charles Schwab's name in there. I didn't see any other brokers referred to in the Bible. But when we start looking at how the world then processes money, we go back to our foundational text and say, is this consistent with what these people, these prognosticators, these managers are telling me about money? And you say, wow, okay, that's why things like ESG, as much as it's bandied about and, and critiqued, the idea of, is this good for the environment? Is, this a, is there a social good here? Is this a governance issue that is transparent and credible? Those things do matter, right? And so the world wants that virtue, but we're confused about how to get it. So by faith, will you believe and obey God when it comes to money? And of course, this requires a new and redeemed view of what money is and how it should be treated. And so we're to love God and people and, and use money, not use people and love money. Um, that's idolatry. And so Jesus, uh, Paul said this to Timothy, his protege. Paul, the, uh, the rabbi who becomes the apostle Paul. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What's going on here? It's a statement of idolatry. You've substituted something that isn't God in place of God. And you're hoping it will provide what God alone can provide. 
peace, prosperity, whatever. So disbelieving and disobeying God always brings headaches and heartache. And this is why if we're not rooted in Christ, if we're rootless, there's no fruit. There's no real fruit. We're just mulch at that point. So are you being honest with yourself, with God, and with others when it comes to money? <clears throat> First of all, are you working diligently? Uh, are you learning to manage your money wisely? Are you being fruitful and faithful, dependable, trustworthy with your money? Well, I don't have any money. Ah, well, maybe that's where you start. Why don't you have any money? Why spend it on really dumb stuff? Or I don't make enough, so I've, I've been trying my best. So, oh, but, uh, but, I, but I have a credit card. Well, so you're in credit card debt. Okay, so, so starting it, wherever you are is okay. Don't live in shame. Oh, I'll never get out of this. Just start where you are. Uh, <clears throat> I, I saw a friend uh, recently, and he said, hey, have you talked to so-and-so in a while? And I had talked, haven't talked to this guy in a while. And we were talking about what a great guy he is and how he's grown in his life. And I thought of this funny story about being with this guy in an athletic club in Newport Beach, and we're on these you know, treadmill things, and we're talking, and the guy says to me, he's about 30, he says, hey, do you have any regrets? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but basically, no, I don't have any regrets. I said, do you? He said, yeah. <clears throat> when um, I was a new Christian in high school, uh, and I won't name the, the, the church or the pastor, but he was at Calvary Chapel, and Chuck Smith said, um, <laughs> why go to college? Jesus is returning soon. Now, Chuck grew out of that view. Uh, just like he would say, uh, if, if, you're, if you want to be a pastor, don't go to cemetery. Uh, just learn how to, you know, his riff on seminary. Um, and so I said, well, what's your regret? He said, well, I didn't go to college because I thought Jesus was going to return. And now I'm 30 years old, and I got a, a son. And <clears throat> I, 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 he's been a, he's a concrete contractor, and, and he's being feeling called to ministry, and he's working with us. And uh, in youth ministry, and he thought, man, I, you know, I want to grow. And I said, well, go to college. He goes, well, I'm 30. I, I won't, I'll be 34 by the time I'm done. I said, well, I think you're going to be 34 regardless. So why not go to college? Get a little humble and vulnerable, and your son's going to watch his daddy do something that is going to be a, a big, giant marker for him. So wherever you are financially, don't be moaning and go, oh, too late. No, it's never too late. It's never too late to say, okay, what do I need to do to get smart about money, to get out of debt, to stop worrying I might run out of it, because you will run out of it. If you have a, if you have a fallen world perspective, you will run out of everything, because you're living in a zero-sum mindset. But if you start thinking in a, in a God's kingdom mindset, I don't talk about the crazy, mis, mis spoken, distorted thing called prosperity theology. That is, a, that is a form of idolatry. If you do this for God, he's obligated to pay you off and give you a big bonus. This is a pernicious idolatry in our country, and it breaks my heart to be in Africa. And you'll talk to some African person, and they say, oh, yes, yes, I'm really trying to get the Lord's blessing because I saw Benny Hinn on TV. I'm like, you know, curse Benny Hinn. You know, the guy is, is, is a disaster. Um, he should be a haberdasher, good-looking white suit, go sell suits. Don't tell people how to manage their money because you're, you're, you're pronouncing and promoting idolatry. And so prosperity theology has, has taken a, the, a core biblical thing, prosperity, and distorted it. God wants you to prosper. 
And he has us prosper through hard work and sacrifice and generous giving and, and wide, steward, wide stewarding of our resources. And if you feel like, well, I'll never have enough, then you have too much of an expectation for what enough is. If you can learn to live with what you have, life all of a sudden becomes really good. As long as you're always reaching for the next thing, and you might have a billion dollars, but there's, there's not enough. You are as perniciously captivated with a debt mindset as the person who says, <clears throat> I have so much credit card debt, I'll be upside down forever. So I'm, <clears throat> any of you could probably give this sermon. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking you through this because this is the kind of thing we need to be able to articulate for our children, our grandchildren, and family members and friends. There's a young generation of people coming up who are wondering, um, what, what is the world all about? Is it a Darwinian survival of the fittest? Is it wishful thinking and hoping it comes true? Every young person right now wants a work-life balance, but I expect to be paid full-time. All right, maybe you have to then learn to see a new way of valuing your time and say, I'm going to work 30 hours a week. I'm not going to slow walk what was supposed to be 50, let's say. I'm going to just say, I'm going to work 30 hours a week and negotiate that. If you're a person who says, my job demands 60 hours a week, that's what you signed on for, and you have to find a work-life balance somehow in the midst of that. So these are the kinds of harsh realities or, or wonderful realities that people have to wrestle with as they seek this work-life balance. But right now we're settling for things that are in la-la land. Either that somebody owes us something or um, um, it, it's never going to work and it's a disaster. Only you are situated to articulate this to your kids and your grandkids and the people that trust you. And so this sermon is really just me doing a trainer of trainers moment as we talk about this stuff. And so, uh, generosity, let me wrap up by saying this. Generosity is a core spiritual practice. A generous spirit, uh, a way of, of living generously with whatever you have. Again, this is the thing that undoes me and floors me when I'm ever in impoverished situations, is the incredible generosity of the people. And, and I, I'm, I'm not making a poetic statement about poverty. Poverty is horrible. I'm saying there's a spirit of generosity that is so ennobling that you talk to these people. It's like if your family members have been immigrants to this country, everybody's immigrant story is we had nothing, but we were so happy we didn't know we had nothing. If everybody lives in the same tenement in the Bronx, this is normal. And we just make the best of it, and life is good. And all of a sudden they get outside and go, whoa. Nowadays, with media being what it is, that's impossible. You get to see what's going on, and you think, wait a minute, right? And so generosity is a core spiritual practice. It's a practical measure of Christ-centered character. Expresses, it's, 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 it expresses and is expressing our heart for God and for people. And I'm not talking about numbers, amounts. I'm talking about not equal giving. I'm talking about equal sacrifice. If somebody can give 100 and somebody can give 1, if it really represents your best giving, God bless you. There's parity there. It's not who gives you know, equal. Uh, but if, you're, if, if somebody's giving... A uh, hundred, and they could give a million. You got you. You have to say, wait, well, hold on. What? Help me understand what you're thinking about. Well, what happens is when people have wealth, they go, well, forget you, get out of here. We're dismissed. But th there's going to be somehow somebody close enough to that person at some point who's going to be able to articulate this stuff and say, hey, you know, what? I wonder if we're all slaves to this. Uh, we're, we're holding on to stuff that, first of all, isn't ours. It's entrusted to us by God. And it's weighing down. It's poisoning our soul. We're drinking toxic water. We don't even know it. We're drinking out of lead, lead 
articles. We have lead pipes and we're poisoning ourselves with water. That's what money ill-used, misused is like. So some questions I've asked people over the years. Uh, if, 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 if they're struggling with making a commitment to biblical stewardship, managing under God's provision and God's uh, authority, uh, what starts in duty ends in delight. It feels dutiful, but it brings us to a place of delight. So some questions I've asked uh, people over the years. What led you to begin giving your money to fulfill God's purposes? Some of the answers I've gotten were fear-based. Well, I thought God would whack me if I didn't. Or some of them are duty-based. Well, I know it's a law in the Bible. Well, it's not really a law in the Bible. It's, it's God's guidance to us, you know. But what I've heard most often is, well, what led me was this, but now the reason I give is the pure, unmitigated joy of knowing that I'm participating, participating creatively and productively in God's work in the world. I've had to mitigate some things. One of the best conversations I've had with people is at some point, for, I'll give you an example. For me, this week, <clears throat> I made two big decisions this week. A life-altering decisions. One, I am not going to buy a private jet. Two, a um, uh, billion dollars is enough in one year. So when I get to that billion-dollar mark, I'm, it's all, the rest of it is going away. It's not, it's, and, and, the, and I'll, I'll fly, whatever. So it sounds silly, but some version of that is really important. So the guy that I was talking to a couple years ago who said, you know, at one point I said, God, just let me make a million dollars a year and I'll be cool with that. He said, I ended up revisiting that every several years. But the number went from one to five, from five to ten. Uh, it's blown my mind, but then I realized it's not really quite there yet. It went to 15, it went to 20, it went to 25, uh, and now it's north of 40. And he's going, I love the idea of giving. I love writing the check. I just can't let go of it. So this is the crazy thing. What led you to begin giving your money to fulfill God's purposes? What have you learned concerning how God wants you to use money? How has giving money affected you and your experience of the Lord? What does your giving say about your heart for God and people? What advice would you give to those who don't practice generous giving? So uh, these are great questions to review all the time. How would you answer these questions? And you might say, well, I could, answer, I could ace all of them. Way to go. Great. What then is your growing edge? It's not a challenge. Give more. It's not that kind of challenge, a mono on mono kind of an ego thing. Just saying, hey, do you think you've explored that enough? What creative plans, if you have excess wealth, what, what creative plans are you making for it? Uh, it's funny, how again, how our, our, our government and our laws are structured to help people be generous. So my personal story here is that before I understood the message of biblical generosity, I thought it was nuts, first of all. And if I gave, I gave out of convenience. Because you know, at the time, I didn't have anything. I was just a kid. Uh, but then the more I, I learned to be generous, the more I thought, I like this. And then when I became a follower of Jesus, I thought, hey, this whole tithing thing sounds a little sketchy to me. Somebody's working the, the system here. You know? <laughs> so I had that skeptical thing. But then as, I, as, I, as a late-stage teenager started practicing <laughs> biblical stewardship, I was Janet and I as a new couple. You know, it's, not, it's, it's funny to think about, you know, as a young adult, your parents are saying, you can't afford to do that. Because your parents know what you have and what you don't have. and you No, know, you, you can't afford to do that. And our thing was, well, 
We think we can't afford not to. Not because God's going to whack us, but because this is what God calls us to practice. And all of a sudden, you know, you go, hey, I've, <clears throat> I'm kicking into this, this, this kind of a gulf stream, this slipstream of joy and delight. And, and, and either God provides what I need or I just I, I tone down what I, what I do and my expectations. All of a sudden, you become so free. It's kind of giddy and intoxicating to be that free. And so to give is to live. And so I'm going to read a quick list of guidelines for godly giving. I won't give you all the scriptures. If you want them, I can give them to you later. But I'd say learn to give gratefully, sacrificially, proportionately, regularly, locally, globally, generously, cheerfully, expectantly, and creatively. Uh, These are habits of the heart. Uh, and these habits of the heart reflect God's views on money as it relates to living and giving. The two are tied together. You can't separate them. You stop giving, you really stop living functionally. Um, it's what we need. It's what our families need. It's what our country needs. Uh, certainly it's what churches and every other institution needs. Uh, it's what our world needs. Why? Because in God's great economy, we are the answer to somebody's need. And we simply give as he has given to us. And it's the most beautiful thing to think about. And, and those pinch points when you think, was this a good idea? I think this is a very bad idea. Uh, at that moment, this is the theology that holds you together to say, no, we're going through a rough path, but this is, this is the way I'm, I'm supposed to live. Again, this is the way I'm privileged to live. This is not a have to. This is a get to. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us this privilege of practicing generosity after your own heart, of exercising the freedom that is inherently ours in this relationship with with you. You've liberated us. You've set us captives free. Uh, You're healing the things that destroy us from the inside out. You protect us from those things, those forces that otherwise would destroy us around us because you've given us a resilience based on our trust in you because you are trustworthy. And we're not taking any great risks in trusting you. But it feels like a big, big risk, Lord. So I pray you'd help each one of us to come to terms with the fact that but for you, uh, there is no life. And in you is life in all its fullness. That's our hope and our prayer. That's the message, Lord. Help us to learn to articulate that for our children and our grandchildren. Uh, For those who are curious and and bother to ask, help us to be patient with those who are struggling with this. Help us to, to encourage them and not berate them or shame them but help us to invite them to join us in this journey of generosity, uh, this lifestyle of living generously because of your generosity pouring into us and flowing from us. Help us to have good information about life because we're turning to you for it. We pray all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. As we wrap up worship uh, with some music and as we think about uh, what we're offering to God, Again, uh, uh, there's all kinds of ways to give to this church, but we're not talking about that when we talk about offering. That's stewardship. Offering is who are you in Christ and what do you need to bring to him today? You bring whatever you need to bring to him today and offer it to him uh, and receive from him what you need. If we can pray for you, following the service, go go around to the prayer garden. We'd love to have a prayer with you. That's a normal thing. It's not a weird thing. It's not not the walk of shame. (laughs) I'm going to get, I need prayer. It's, 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 it's saying, ah, oh, good, I'm going to have some people pray with me. Uh, and then I would love you to, if you'd like to be a prayer person, we'd love you to be one of the people who prays for people. Super easy, super fun. 
Meanwhile, get something to eat and then come back and we're going to have some fun conversations around this Alpha project. Uh, so let's worship the Lord together. of this world will fail and the treasures of our Surrender is not giving up. It's giving over to God. It's giving in to God. It's saying, Lord, your will be done. I, don't, I can't imagine a more fun way to love 
I want to know and do your will. Not as much of rules and laws, but as a relationship where we're walking and talking about how to navigate life, how to receive and live out of that blessing of knowing God and blessing others with it. Uh, get something to eat. Uh, come back at 11. We're going to have a really fun conversation after we watch this uh, alpha video. Uh, 20 million plus people have watched it and, and benefited from it. It's really, really a neat conversation starter. If we can do anything to help you grow in your faith, uh, if we can direct you to resources that would help you take that next step in your life, wherever that needs to go, uh, whether it's good counsel uh, or, or wise mentoring, whatever we can do to help you, we want to do that. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look at you with the delight and wonder because you are his beloved. And you can experience that now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.